Three times a week, The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, there's a robust community of friends, including Dominique Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's The Right Time with Bomani Jones on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and on ESPN's YouTube channel. ESPN's Debatable is a digital exclusive series across the network's Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube channels, and the ESPN app. And now it's available as a podcast. The innovative series is led by a rotating team of signature voices, including me, who take on the most compelling topics from around the sports world. Check out Debatable now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Daniel Levitin, and my dilemma is that I want to learn to play guitar like Ry Cooter. And right after we get off our conversation, I'm taking guitar lessons. The first guitar lesson I've had in probably 40 years. I mean, it sounds like you're solving your own dilemma, taking the lessons. I always say if I had a sabbatical or uh, several months off work, I would get back to my guitar lessons um, because I took them senior year of college, which is such a tough time to try to to learn something new and focus. So many things going on with, you know, track and and your friends and and classes and everything else. But um, I just so badly want to be able to play. I I have this vision of myself sitting around, you know, a, a campfire or late night drinks with friends being able to pull out the guitar so um i want to get back to it and good on you for um for pursuing it and and having a specific goal um in fact those first steps toward learning something and achieving that goal like the lessons you're taking that's going to be a big part of the do crew and there's going to be some more about that in next week's podcast so for all my do crew people and for everyone at home who wants to work towards something alongside us do crewers that's going to be next week i'm gonna have some more info on that that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Check out the party voice on this girl. Uh, I just had the most incredible long weekend at the Super Bowl in L.A. with Gatorade, who were the absolute best hosts, hands down. Our Women's Advisory Board met in person to continue working on keeping girls in sport and advocating for and elevating conversations about uh, female athletes and women's sports. Uh, so I got to meet so many of the incredible women in person and spend time with folks that I, I really admire so much, uh, like Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle, April Ross, uh, Jen Brunelli, Aaliyah Taylor, Maddie Bregman, Gina Hardy, just this really badass collection of women. Um, We got to go to a killer Miley Cyrus Green Day concert, and I am fully in love with Miley now. Uh, She is an incredible performer, amazing voice, amazing stage presence. Uh, We went to fun parties, an incredible Gatorade dinner at this hotspot, Delilah. And of course, the game itself um, and the halftime show and everything else. The game was sort of a a little early Valentine's Day with with the hubby and, uh, and, you know, 70,000 other people. Uh, just feeling super lucky, super grateful for the opportunities and, and relationships and uh, Gatorade does it right. First class all the way. So I think you'll excuse the party voice, right? Uh, it's worth it. It's worth it, I say. Uh, let's get to this week's guest who is uh, making his second appearance on the podcast. Noted neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, best-selling author. He came on a few years ago and talked about all sorts of things, including neuroplasticity, 
how to avoid um, triggers or things that you know change your mood and control your reactions to them. Also this clip, which I think about a lot, uh, where he talks about the dangers of multitasking. I'm fascinated by what you wrote about multitasking because I like to commend myself on my ability to multitask because I have a couple different bosses depending on radio or writing or TV. Um, and I've got, you know, a couple dogs at home and I'm doing X and Y. And you said it's actually very bad for the brain to be constantly multitasking because you're not actually doing everything at once. You're just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, this is the work of Earl Miller at MIT who I think you might enjoy talking to if you haven't already. Yeah. Uh, but he's one of the world experts on attention, and, and he says multitasking doesn't really exist. And he's not the only one saying it. And I've read a number of papers that converge on this idea that, um, to use a programming analogy from computer programming, when you engage in any kind of a project, whether it's um, cl clipping your fingernails or... Um, mixing orange juice from a frozen can or talking to somebody on the phone, each of those things opens up a project file in your brain. And you can only attend to one or two project files at once. And although it seems like you're multitasking when you're driving and listening to the radio and talking to the kids in the back seat and looking for a parking place, mm -hmm. all the while trying to avoid pedestrians and other cars, um, you're not really doing all those things at once. Your brain is instead rapidly shifting from one to the next. And it causes a fragmentation of attention and it burns up resources like crazy because all that switching, the switching itself comes at a neurobiological cost. So um, it, it's, it's a myth that we're multitasking. It appears that we are. And it's a particularly insidious myth because when we do it, we feel like we're getting a lot done. We have this subjective feeling that we're really being more productive and efficient than ever before. But as a neuroscientist, I can tell you, uh, one of the brain's favorite pastimes is self-delusion. So <laughs> just because your brain thinks that you're good at something doesn't make you good at it. I recommend you go back and listen to the full podcast. Uh, really great stuff. But, uh, you know, last time I said he was on, I did want to have him back specifically to talk about his work on the brain and music. Um, we touched on it just briefly last time. Here's a little bit of that. I read a really interesting conversation that you had with musician David Byrne. And one of the things you talked about. Isn't how, he great? Uh, well, it was really fascinating to read. But um, and he clearly looks at music in a in a almost scientific way sometimes, the way he performs oh, and yeah. approaches it. Very much but so. The, you talked about someone who had figured out that the sound of wood going through his buzzsaw made different levels and then was able to replicate the sound of a symphony using that and that our brains could immediately recognize it as the song, even though separately each of those were just the sound of wood in a, in a buzzsaw and how we can't have computers do that. And, it, and it's true, you know, there are all sorts of um, apps that you can use to try to tell you what song you're listening to, but it has to be the exact song. It can't be right. a cover. It can't be a different key. It can't be a different performer. And um, and so that would be fascinating to me to understand the things that you cannot make a computer do that the human brain is capable of and then trying to understand why. Is that something you've tried to get into? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, it, you know, the way you characterize it is one way that um – that some people describe the whole AI industry, artificial intelligence industry, is trying to figure out how to get computers to do stuff that they can't do, that brains can do. And um, 
you know, my, my job as a professor for more than 20 years uh, found me teaching some of that, um, some of the principles of artificial intelligence and some of the examples of it. And it's good at some things. It's not good at others. It's obviously improving all the time. And um, the the pattern matching is one of the things that humans are really great at. That's That's what we're doing in the example you mentioned, being able to recognize that uh, we're hearing a song we've heard before, even though maybe every element has changed. So Daniel Levitin has a new album out, Sex and Math, and I figured it was a good time to bring him back to talk about it. Enjoy the conversation. That's what she said. So excited to welcome back Daniel Levitin. And the last time he was on, I went back and listened January of 2019, which isn't all that long ago, although in, in terms of the actual years between those, it's it's a lifetime of, of all the things that have gone on. So before we get into the album and your return to focusing on, on a lot of music stuff, I want to touch back on a couple of the things that we, we talked about. And I do encourage everyone to go back and listen to the first one. But if you can um, briefly remind people of your circuitous path through music and um, cognitive psychology and science, um, because you you had Berkeley School of Music and Stanford and working with bands and all this stuff. So uh, take people briefly through that journey. Well, I'd always been interested in music and science, both, as long as I can remember. Uh, My grandfather was a big influence. He was a medical doctor. He was really into science. uh, And he loved listening to music. I don't He died when I was 10, so I can't say whether he ever played an instrument or not, but he sure loved his stereo. And um, I started college thinking that I would study music and and math and science, and then dropped out because I just wanted to make music and see how far I could get. Um, It's not, it, it wasn't I wanted to see how far I can get without college. That wasn't the... (laughs) <laughs> the experiment, it was, uh, I was antsy to get going and to play music. And um, I played in a succession of bands. I, uh, in punk and new wave and rock and country and jazz groups, um, each of us, I think, ended up collapsing under the weight of our own incompetence. <laughs> Uh, But uh, I found my way into recording studios, and I loved it there, found my way into working with really talented musicians in those studios and learned how to use the studio as a musical instrument, as another tool to convey music. Uh, Enormous period of of learning uh, for me, and wrote a bunch of songs starting at the age of 18, And then after I dropped out of college at 20, kept writing and writing and writing. I'm drawing this out longer than it need be. But uh, (laughs) at one point when the music industry started to implode, there was this cohort of us who had all entered the music industry around the same time in 1980, 81. And when it started to implode, we thought we better have a backup plan because it looks like no one's going to be able to make a living at this except for the tip of the iceberg folks. So a bunch of us went back to college, and me included, and I had such a good time in college, was drawn to science, got my doctorate in cognitive neuroscience, got a job at McGill, running a lab, and uh, 
that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, there's so much in there that we talked about last time and there's so much more to, to talk about, but um, that does set up that you could be someone who simultaneously has written all these books on, um, on the brain and neuroscience, and then also our brain's connection to music and now have this, this new album out. I'm fascinated by the, the work you've done on, on the brain and music. And I want you to first explain what is sort of the focus of the work at the Music Cognition Lab at McGill? Oh, um, I started it in the year 2000. So we've been going 22 years. I actually started in January 2000, so 22 years last mm -hmm. month. The focus really was, I tell people we try to understand where goosebumps come from. What is it that gives you the chills? Um, but it's, it's also looking at, I mean, attendant to that is doing brain scans to figure out which parts of the brain communicate with others for particular musical tasks. What are the neurochemicals that are involved in musical pleasure, musical memory? Uh, and then we study people with developmental disorders like Williams syndrome and Down syndrome and try to better understand the genetic contributions to musicality through them. It's, mm. it's got a very broad mandate, anything having to do with music and to some extent speech. We've done some speech uh, research because, of course, speech is musical. Yeah. I could say sure. speech is musical or <laughs> musical. And yep. they mean different things. Yeah, for sure. Um, your first book, This Is Your Brain on Music, um, one of the thesis was that music is is fundamental to our species and our evolution. It's not just accidental. It's not um, the cherry on top, but part of the Sunday. Why do you believe that? Well, it's, it's something that is hard to prove until we get Peabody and Sherman to put us in the Wayback Machine <laughs> and see for ourselves what early humans were like. But I believe, and many people in the field believe, that the weight of evidence is that music is an evolutionary adaptation, and some of that evidence comes from its ubiquity and its antiquity. There's no culture now or any time in the past that has lacked music. And some of the evidence comes from our own, I would say, um, neuroanatomical research where we find that the regions of the brain, Sarah, that respond to music are some of the oldest parts of the brain, phylogenetically oldest. What does that mean, phylogenetically? Uh, I'm sorry to throw out a 50 cent word. <laughs> Uh, phylogenetics refers to the time course of evolution. So older on the evolutionary family tree. So our brains are, in fact, there are parts of our brain that exist only in current humans that were not there. Oh yeah. Eons ago. I mean, I mean the, the, certainly we have regions of the brain that monkeys don't have. Hmm. Uh, and so, but the musical parts of the brain are very, very old. So that's evolutions to better interact with, say, our phones that will eventually down down the line, our, our brains might better function in ways that, that never required um, growth or, or, or evolution in, 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 in cavemen. Well, so evolution's happening all the time. It just happens at such a slow pace. We tend not right. to notice it 
my friend Robert Sapolsky, biologist at Stanford, talks about evolutionary lag, meaning that it takes 10 or 20,000 years for human brains to catch up with the way the world is. And so, you know, 10,000 years from now, I'm sure we won't have phones. Right. That's very true. Or or perhaps be here (laughs) at all. Um, But is there an example of something that we believe is a phylogenetically younger part of our brain? Um, Possibly language is younger than music. That's what we've seen in our own studies. Um, But hard to say. Um, Reading. Reading's only been around for 5,000 years. Um, Reading was not an evolutionary adaptation. Rather, culture used systems that were in place in the brain to invent reading and writing. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I heard you talk about with someone else is that when we're listening to music oh, together, I never talk to anybody else, you're the only that's one. That's right. Just this podcast. Um, when we're listening to music together, the neurons in our brain fire together, yeah. which is fascinating to me. Um, of course it makes sense, but I would also think people react to music so differently. For one person, a song could make them cry in a beautiful way. Another person, it, they could immediately want to turn it off or hate it. So when the neurons are firing, what does that mean about how our brain is receiving the music? So um, our whole brains don't synchronize when we listen to music with other people, but parts of them do. Uh, the parts that are responding to the tempo and the beat uh, and some other things that are responding to the structure. You recognize where a phrase has ended because mm-hmm. the music slows down. Maybe there's a silence before the next part. But certainly you're absolutely right, Sarah, at an emotional level, your emotional reaction to a piece of music is very personal. It's intimate. It's idiosyncratic. And the way a song hits you today could be very different than the way it hit you yesterday, depending on Mm -hmm. what's going on in your life. And I think that's what gives music its power and its durability. I'm still listening to music I've listened to since I was a kid, but I'm a different person now. Mm -hmm. I've had different experiences and I've listened to different music since then. So it all recontextualizes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
reading about how music coordinates more disparate parts of the brain than almost anything else and playing music uses even more. Why is that? Why do we need so many parts of our brain to, to take it in? Well, music is a very, what I would call in the jargon of our field, it's a very rich uh, structured stimulus. And so it doesn't seem this way uh, but we have these basically special little computer programs in the brain that are each doing just one thing. Part of the brain is keeping track of pitch. Another part is keeping track of duration. Another part's keeping track of loudness. Those pitches get strung together into a melody and into harmony. Those durations get strung together into a meter. You know, is it in waltz time or is it in march time? That kind of thing. And all these are happening in these disparate parts of the brain. Plus, because sound is part of the well-known startle reflex, it has connections to your movement centers. If you hear a sudden loud sound, you need to get out of the way quickly. Mm-hmm. And this is probably related to why we dance. We've huh. hotwired the auditory system to the motor system. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, I'm curious as to why the brain, and I, I think this is probably for musical people more so than the average, but I think in general, why the brain has such an ease in remembering and repeating music. Um, as, a, as an anecdote, my husband and I went to see Fish for the first time, and we have a friend who's gone over a hundred times. And I said, I'm going to have fun. I, I think I know five or six songs, but I don't know a ton. And there was one moment that I was singing along and my husband said, oh, so you know this one too. And I said, no, it's just been going on long enough that now I know it because I had figured out the song. And by halfway through, which for a fish song is what, eight, 20 minutes, 20 minutes is halfway through. um, I had figured out what it was and I was singing along. But why is it that in so many other contexts, our brains would not pick up so quickly what they're listening to, but for music, we can repeat the the pitch and the tone and the lyrics and everything else and, and remember it years later even. Well, it's, there's a lot going on there. I mentioned, I had sort of tossed out that it was highly structured as a stimulus, yeah. as an input. Uh, of course, I don't think of music as a stimulus or an input, but <laughs> I have my scientist hat on now. So um, there are only 12 notes in the scale. And they, uh, when we combine them into melody and we add rhythm, and meter and accent structure and harmony uh, chords and all of this, um, each of those serves to, you know, if the song is well constructed, each of them reinforces the other. Yeah. So the rhythm helps you recall the melody, the melody helps you recall the rhythm, all these elements work together ideally. And so when I say it's highly structured, I mean it's highly patterned. It's, it is highly memorable. And more so than speech. I mean, there, there are hundreds of thousands of words in the English language. Right. The average person among us probably knows 30,000, but we can get by on most days using only 2,500 words. But still, that's a lot more than 12. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. Yeah. All these things work together, and we've we've grown up with music, and it's caused us to 
encode in the very wiring of our brain the rules of music. So if I were to go, ba da 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 you know that that's probably what's going to come next. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. yep. Or if I go, ba da 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 yep, yeah. it's going to, same. Yeah, so it's 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 structured and it's patterned and it the guesses um, unless it, it gets wildly interesting and, and special uh, could be could be right because of, of what also what we're used to which is um, how some great catchy tunes and earworms are made I imagine is they know what we expect and they know how to serve us something that will get stuck in our head and be remembered yeah yeah very much which, uh, is done for profit, not for not for pleasure for most of us when we get well, stuck you know, in our I'm head. Thinking about Paul <laughs> I'm thinking about Paul McCartney, who certainly writes for profit, but yes. Um, on the other hand, I guess I'm thinking catchy versus earworm. Yeah, catchy is pleasurable. Earworm is oh my god! If I have to listen to one more second of the Cars for Kids jingle, I'm yeah. throwing my phone out of the out of the window. Um, when you when you talked about the the cognition lab studying what gives us chills, I would love to hear that because it is such a powerful thing for music to make us feel these incredibly strong emotions, sometimes in spite of ourselves. Sometimes there isn't a nostalgic tie to the song. It isn't making us think of something in our own lives. It's just something about the way that music is created is is moving. What is that? Well, it's a combination of things. It's where it's 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 the skill of the composer and the performers to surprise us um, with the entrance of new musical ideas, new rhythms, new instruments come in and out. Um, it's got to be surprising. You're not going to get chills from Barney the dinosaur <laughs> or from Baby Shark. <laughs> Uh, but well, you might, if you're a little kid, cause it's all yeah. so new, but, um, it's still mysterious. And I think ultimately we get the chills when I think when skilled musicians are channeling real human emotion and we feel it. Yeah. Just the yeah. way you could get the chills watching a great actor what they're they're in the business of doing is reflecting back to you your own emotions in a safe form of another character or persona and if they do it with enough skill and sincerity it can change your life well and different kinds of music can actually change our brain chemistry yes yes how does that work well the Simplest case is if it's music that makes you want to throw your phone out the window. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, true. <laughs> you know, you're experiencing adrenaline and, um, you know, the fear centers of your brain are releasing cortisol, fear or aggravation centers. If it's music that's relaxing, your neurochemistry shifts towards uh, the release of neurochemicals like prolactin that soothe you and calm you. Yeah. We don't think about that, though, when we're doing it. Well, we might be aware of the fact that listening to soothing music is good for us or that listening to high-energy music helps us finish a run, but we're most of us not actually thinking about what we're doing in here when we do that. 
Well, I think that's right. But I mean, you're not thinking consciously when you're forming a sentence, which is the participle and which is the adjective. Right. Right. Fair. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Yes. Yes. It's a magical word. It opens doors. It accepts opportunities, unlocks adventures. It keeps an improv scene moving. Uh, It's from the Old English G-I-S-E or G-E-S-E, meaning so be it. Probably from the so of G-E-A and G-E plus S-I, be it. Uh, And it used to mean something stronger than a simple, yeah, it meant so be it. It shall be. Yes. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is... In honor of the Super Bowl champs and the state that I am currently in after a long weekend of fun, the word of the week is ramfeasled, meaning worn out or exhausted. Ramfeasled, from the late 18th century, earliest use found in the work of poet Robert Burns, who lived from 1759 to 1796. They're not quite sure of exactly the roots of the word, but ramfeasled is a very fun way to say that you are exhausted. So, in a sentence, I stayed out so late at the Rams Super Bowl after party, I was positively ramfeasled Monday morning and boarded my plane feeling like a satchel of Richards. It was nice and edited for Disney. Now let's get back to the interview. I'm curious, as you were creating this this new album, Sex and Math, you know, people often want to put us in a box. Um, people occasionally even judge folks who are good at multiple things. If you're an actor and then you tell people you're a painter, people will sometimes scoff at that. If you're an athlete and you tell everyone you're a rapper. Um, so despite starting your career in music and having it be the through line for, for it, were there any worries to how it might affect people's view of you as a neuroscientist or um, to be taken seriously as, as a musician and not as a side project? Um, that's, that's a big question. I think m- many of the people I know who study the neuroscience of music are musicians of varying levels of commitment to it. Uh, some were <laughs> professional musicians. Some are very, very good amateurs. Uh, and so it's not unusual at our annual conference for a band to get put together and we all play <laughs> together. And uh, so I don't think any neuroscientists of music looked out on somebody making music. My friend Bill Thompson in Australia, great music neuroscientist, great composer and pianist. I've written about Richard Parncut, who's a systematic musicologist who can play over a thousand songs on the piano from memory. It's so fun to have him come and visit and stay over at my house. (laughs) Uh, We just go for hours, including old cartoon themes like the theme from Top Cat. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. But in terms of um, what was the second part, not being judged by neuroscience, but uh, just, just, it's an unfairness of people to want to limit us to one thing that we can be good at or, or thrive at. But, but just the idea of does, does it ever affect anyone's opinion of you as a neuroscience when you say, but also here's my album and I'm a musician. Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, I, I haven't, I haven't had that problem, but you're right. Some people say, uh, why can't you just do one thing? Why can't you stay in your lane? But not sure, not sure why anyone would want that. But unfortunately, it is it is a refrain. 
People say that. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I live much of the year in Hollywood and actors get typecast all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to do drama because you, you know, that's your thing. And, you know, trying to cross over into action or into comedy can be difficult. But um, none of that has anything to do with me. I, made, <laughs> I decided um, about, I don't know, I think it's been, it's been eight years now. It was getting harder and harder for me to find music I wanted to listen to. Um, I do throw on my favorite streaming service and I just let it play me new stuff and I'm always on the lookout. And I'm in a, in a, a great position where most of my friends are songwriters, so I'm hearing new stuff all the time. But it wasn't like when I was a kid and there was what seemed to be an endless amount of stuff that I, I wanted to hear. So I thought, well, I'm going to write the music I want to hear. Yeah. This is, this is not about what other people think of me. It's I want to be able to put something on that I want to listen to. <laughs> and that meant that I had to up my game in terms of my songwriting and my musicianship. I knew how to produce records, but I didn't know how to sing them and I didn't know how to write good records. I've been working at it a long time, but not very systematically. And so I lucked out because I, around that time, I was seeing Joni Mitchell for dinner about once a month at her house. How nice. She would play me whatever she was working on. Uh, Us having dinner once a month probably goes back 20 years, but, you know, about eight Mm -hmm. years ago, I... I said, I have this dilemma. <laughs> I want to write music, but I don't want it to be bad. And <laughs> um, I don't really know how to go about taking these songs that I have and making them better. And so she very kindly talked to me about how to approach writing and editing a song and suggested I get other advice too. And so I reached out to my friend Rodney Crowell, one of my favorite writers. And between the two of them, they sort of gave me a system. You know, Joni and Rodney didn't go in and say, well, change this line or change this chord. It was more like, well, if this is what you're doing, here's how to think more deeply about it and how to, how to, Joni talked about peeling off the layers of the onion to get deeper to the emotional core. And then, you know, maybe you have to change the melody to do that. And then once I had the songs, Joni said that she liked them and they, she said they weren't up to her standards, but she, <laughs> she said nobody is up to her standards. Tough, so tough bar. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't hold out for that. But then uh, she taught me to sing them. Wow. She got in with a tweezers and was looking mm-hmm. at, I mean, a metaphorical tweezers, looking at yes. syllables and vowels and how I was conveying the songs and the amazing thing in working with her on that was I had to get out of my own way. I was too trying too hard to sound like a singer mm-hmm. and not letting the story of the song tell itself. And that made a big difference. Yeah. How did you first meet Joni? I met her in 1996 when I was writing for the Grammy organization and I interviewed her for a cover story in the Grammy magazine. And I think at that point in her career, she was fed up with journalists and inane questions. <laughs> you know, what's your favorite color? Yeah. Or, 
you know, uh, do you ever think you'll play with Neil Young again? I mean, <laughs> um, but I, I knew her music as well as I knew anybody's and I had done my homework. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but when the interview was set, I was given 20 minutes. And the manager came in after 20 minutes to shoo me out. And she told him to let me stay. And this nice. went on for like eight 20 minute periods. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she in. was enjoying herself. Yeah. Yeah. But she'd given herself great. an escape valve. Of course. Always need to. And it's like we a first done, date. Yeah. When we were <laughs> done, she said, uh, you know, next time you're in LA, give me a call. We'll get together for dinner. That's great. I love that. In listening to the to the album, it can be very jazzy. It can be very folksy. Um, now that you're gone, I, I hear like a little Paul Simon. Now that you are gone, and I'm here all alone. Wondering what you're doing now The why and how Are you crying too? Darwin song, I hear a little Steve Miller band. Now Charles Darwin had this big idea It's hardly charming if it ain't clear, it all comes down to this. We're descended from fish. Uh, my refrain is kind of Bob Dylan-esque in the, in the spoken. This is. This is. This is my refrain. I mean, there's definitely references and referential points to it. Um how do you describe your sound to other people? I have no idea how to describe <laughs> it. I mean, all those people that you named are people I listen to. Um, Stuart Copeland uh, of the police told me that the album sounds like either highbrow J.J. Kale or lowbrow Steely Dan. <laughs> Two of my favorite recording artists. So I'll, I'll there you take go. it. <laughs> I mean, there there are a couple of Steely Danish songs. My refrain, which has this Dylanish quality, I think it was an homage to. I think of it as an homage to Lou Reed. Mm, yeah. Oh, for sure. And then you know, um, there's Paul Simon and there's Rodney Crowell, and and the opening cut, headed for the fall, has a Steely Dan vibe, but it was a mu my musical answer to Joni's hissing of summer lawns mm. and then you know an actual steely dan band member played saxophone on my refrain roger rosenberg nice. oh that's wonderful, great wonderful player and you know the the act of putting this together was terrifying um is this your first big album in in it's my You've second so album much. as a solo artist, but I'd say the first big one because this is not just me noodling around with a friend in my spare bedroom, but it's actually in a studio with really stellar musicians. And I got a grant from uh, Factor, the government of Canada and Canada's private radio broadcasters to 
pay for the studio time and the musicians. And that was a big vote of confidence. I didn't think that people could get a factor grant the first time out, but I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Um, so what's the goal with the album? What, what is, what is it, what does it look like to mean that it's a success for you? I had only two goals and, and both of them had been met. One is to have something I can put on that I want to listen to. And it doesn't make you cringe to listen to yourself. It used to, but I worked hard enough to get to the point where I could write and sing in a way that I felt I was doing my best. Hmm. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily good by anybody else's standards, but I know that it's my best. I tend only to cringe when I feel that I haven't put my best effort into something. Yeah. If I put my best effort, even if it's not universally appreciated, at least I can feel like I do. I, I, I did everything I could. The second goal was to have people whose music has meant so much to me find some enjoyment and pleasure from it. And in just the few weeks it's been out, I mean, Stuart Copeland told me it's on his playlist. I've heard from, I mean, Joni told me she loves the songs. She said she would swoon if she was 30 years younger. <laughs> I said, well, what do I have to do to make you swoon now? She said, well, <laughs> she says, I'm getting there. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Rodney Crowell loved it. He served as the A&R person. Uh, and so, well, Gary Katz, the producer of Steely Dan, whose music I've listened to for tens of thousands of hours, he loved the record. That All of that, that my second goal, that was met there. Yeah, people that you respect. People, yeah. yeah, people I respect. If other people um, enjoy the songs and find themselves singing them when they're not actually playing, I'd be thrilled. Yeah. You mentioned that you haven't been able to find as much music you really enjoy now as you used to be able to. Um, I, I think it's probably a combination for most of us of we don't have the same time to give to musical exploration and listening and, and, and all that. But also when we're younger, our shared experiences with others often are in these groups where we're trying to find our own identity. So we associate ourselves with the groups of people we're with, whether that's in class or in school. And then the music that's really popular at that time is stuff that we hear over and over again. And maybe we wouldn't like it if we didn't hear it over and over again, but eventually by however many times we now know the words and the melody and everything else. So um, why is it that we get so drawn to the music of, of our youth, maybe in ways that it's harder to later? Well, some of it is um, neurological. Between the ages of 10 and 15, our brains are hungrily soaking up everything that's going on around us in our social world. It's around the age of 10 or 11 that you first realize, I can make my own decisions about what music I like and what TV shows I like, and I can choose my friends, and I can dress the way I want to, and you know, it's 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 not an all all at once thing, but we're growing into the notion that we can invent ourselves or reinvent ourselves, and so all of that period of exploration is um, hardwired into the brain, along with our social identity. 
if you went to most schools in North America anyway, intermediate schools, high schools, there are different groups of kids. You know, there's, there might be the chess club and the football team and the, uh, the acting geeks and the band geeks and the disaffected goth people. And, you know, each yeah. of them has their own style of dress and their own style of music. And your social identity is tied to some extent to what your friends are listening to and your own sense of discovery and your own personal idiosyncratic history of what you grew up on. And as I said, your brain literally wires up to that. And after the age of 20, the primary mission of the brain shifts from acquiring new information in a sponge-like fashion to pruning out the unneeded connections. Mm -hmm. So when you say you hear Paul Simon and Bob Dylan in my music, I'm thinking, well, I hope so. That's those mm -hmm. are the people who shaped me. Yeah. Yeah. It is just fascinating though. Like you'll hear songs from 20 years ago and realize you still know every word and it's not even a band that you particularly loved or spent a ton of time with. It was just the band that was always on when you yeah. were of that age, when your brain was just soaking it all up. So if people want to listen to sex and music, where can they find it? Sex and math, I should say. Well, it should be on all the major streaming platforms. Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon. Um, it's available for purchase uh, at your favorite online retailer. And um, it's not designed as a bunch of singles. It's designed as an album. And I hope that each song sounds different and that it, you don't feel like you're listening to the same sound over and over again. We tried to mix it up because that's what I wanted to hear. What's the name? What's the name all about? Oh, uh, my friend Rodney Crowell put out a record some years ago called Sex and Gasoline. Mm -hmm. There was a line in one of his songs, and I kind of liked that. I didn't want to name the album after one of the songs. And then my friend Christopher Harrison, who produced the first record, Turnaround, wonderful producer and musician, he said, you know what you should call it? You should call it sex and math, because really that encompasses everything. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the body, it's the mind, it's uh, feelings. So. So sex and math it was. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Always fascinating to talk to and uh, hopefully people will go check it out. Thank you, Sarah. Nice to talk to you again. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for rants, raves, things to read, listen to, watch, whatever is currently on my mind. And right now it's the Olympic women's hockey team. I hope you're listening to this podcast right when it's released because they play for gold Wednesday, 11 p.m. Eastern American time. It's a rematch against the rival Canadians and their gold medal match that the U.S. won in Pyeongchang uh, was one of the greatest sporting events I've ever seen. Like, I was on the edge of my couch the entire time, losing my mind, um, and I'm, I'm hoping for the same, both in terms of the excitement and the result. Let's go USA, right? I can't wait. Super pumped for my friend Kendall Coyne Schofield and the rest of the team, Hillary Knight and, and everybody. So uh, 11 o'clock, Wednesday night, Eastern time. Uh, let's all be in front of our TVs cheering them on.
You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it. Five stars, please. Give it a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>